Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. We also review case studies, and we also review the medical literature. Today's show topic is reducing cardiovascular risk with a nutrient-dense, plant-rich diet style. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Joel Furman, best-selling author of uh, Eat to Live, uh, End of Diabetes, and he's coming out with a new book, which we'll talk about in March of 2016. Uh, he uh, has a nutritarian approach to treating all kinds of chronic conditions, and he co-authored a very interesting paper entitled Improve Cardiovascular Parameter with a Nutrient-Dense, Plant-Rich Diet Style, a patient survey with illustrative cases in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine, 2015. So welcome, Joel. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, my pleasure. Great to be here with you, Kirk. You know, I... Um, Lost touch for a little while, and then I was listening to a TED Talk, and I got across one of yours. And here was the interesting thing I never knew, as I never knew really how you got into medicine or had a, got into getting into medical school. And you told a story at the beginning of that TED Talk, and I was wondering if you'd share it, about how you, um, I think you got challenged by someone to go uh, help people. <laughs> well... You know, I was a, you know that I was a competitive figure skater. I was, an, I was a pair skater with my sister, and we won the United States um, World Figure Skating Team. I was, um, so I was, like, really devoted during college to my skating career, you know, training in the middle of the night all my, you know, all, you know six or eight hours a day. And um, I wound up in 1976, was third in the world in pairs figure skating with my sister. And so, I, so college was, you know, I took courses. I enjoyed it, but I really wasn't there that much. It was mostly training and involved in my skating career. Um, when I got out of college, I hadn't, you know, I was working in my father's chain of shoe stores, and I, I was teaching skating actually, and had some international competitors, and working in my father's shoe business, he owned ten shoe stores. Thinking of that, what I wanted to do with my life, and I started, you know, I was always ha- had a hobby of reading books on nutrition, and I, I could say I was, uh, you know, into eating healthfully as a, in, in my skating career. And my father was actually quite ill and lost weight and got back his, and gained back his health, changing his diet, reading health books. And so we were eating very healthfully in, as we were training in my late teens. And so in my early 20s, I was pondering and starting to take some courses in the evening to think if I could take the pre-medical requirements to go back to school again. I would probably want to do that. And then at my sister's graduation party, I was, you know, I, my sister was my pair partner and was about five years younger. But I was um, talking to somebody at, at the party, a young woman who was saying to me that she was going to medical school. And I, you know, I was saying, yeah, you know, Doctors are kind of worthless. They treat people with drugs, I and mean, what most is killing people is what they're putting in their mouth with the knives and forks. It's like giving a person a, you know, a person who's hitting their hand with a hammer every day, and then you're going to give them a pill to take the pain away, and the next day they're going to give their hand a big whack with a hammer again. Unless you take the hammer away, they're not going to get better. Drugs don't heal. They, while people keep eating a processed food, junk food diet, they're going to keep getting sicker and sicker. And what doctors do is most make people think they're getting healthier while they allow them to, to abuse their bodies and continue the chronic degeneration. And I said, you know, so, hoping, so, so she said, well, if you're so passionate about all this, why don't you go back to medical school and change all this? So I said, I am going back to, I, I'm thinking about that, you know, so, and then, so we started dating. And um, so I was very much encouraged to, um, through learning, so dating this woman and getting to know her, that you know, why, yeah, why am I, con- why am I um, taking courses at night? Why don't you just drop the, my father's business, go, you know, and go full time, get the courses done in the six months or a year, whatever I need to do, and go back to school. If what I really want to do this, I got to do what I'm passionate about, and not just think of making a living, you know. So I, so I dropped, um, so I, 
So I left the shoe business. My father sold it and retired, and I went back to school full-time to, uh, to Columbia to take my pre-medical requirements and then went to medical school after that. And, of course, you know, that person became my wife, Lisa, so we've been married now for 33 years. <laughs> now, um, I got, now I remember I, the story on the TED Talk. Now it comes clear to me. <laughs> right. So I... Um, so my so my wife went to medical school. I went to medical school. She kind of left and be, you know got pregnant and and had kids. And I um and now she kind of you know um run, runs my online business while I'm writing and researching and seeing patients and and doing my stuff. You know, so she helps me in the business a lot. Doing you know doing the the everyday running of the you know the business so I can devote myself to continuing the things that I want to do. So it's really been great. Been great. Yeah, and I'm, I'm getting. I have tremendous, tremendous personal satisfaction and reward from this career. I have to say, it's just been the, to watch people get well from what are considered irreversible, serious illnesses. To see the recoveries from, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, migraines, asthma, you know, fibromyalgia, chronic headaches, and reversing heart disease, diabetes, and you know, it's just been. Um, I couldn't have think thought of a better, um, you know, more enjoyable and impactful job than this. It's not like a job. It's like you're going to work every day doing what you enjoy doing, you know? Let me uh, ask you, we're, we'll stay on heart disease because that um, your, your book's coming out and that's kind of the article I reviewed. Who, who, what, or were there experiences? Was there a physician or were there a researcher? Were there some kind of experiences that really opened your eyes up to saying that, you know, heart disease is reversible or preventable? You know, I know you're, you, you, we want to focus on heart disease for sure, but I have to say that you know, when I was a teenager and my father, you know, got well, and I went and I started reading um, books by Herbert Shelton um, from the natural hygiene movement about um, people eating a more natural food diet and getting well from a lot of different diseases, including autoimmune conditions, heart, high blood pressure dropping, heart disease reversing. You know, what I'm saying is that even in the 1950s, we already saw um, people, who, you know, health healers or, or physicians or doctors who were mostly of them were chiropractors and naturopaths who were using nutrition, aggressive nutritional interventions to reverse disease effectively. And I visited, I went to spend time in Texas, I was involved and saw a lot of these people get well. So even before Pritikin was out there, there were these people doing this. Even before Ornish did his historical work in the 19, you know, 80s, there were people who were doing this kind of work. So I think that, um, you know, what we've had over the years is definitely more research supporting and um, fine-tuning this and understanding the physiology, the mechanisms, what you have to do to reverse it and how to prevent it. I mean, I think to have more data to get the mainstream more accepting of it. But it's always been around that I've been alive. You know, I'm 62 years. I'll be 62 in a few days. So, um, so I'm saying since this is since, since the 1950s and even before that, we've had a small segment of people that have been aware of that and been utilizing natural food diets to reverse disease. So it's so yes, I've been involved in this natural movement or this natural for a long time and somewhat critical of that movement and seeing the you know, what the, the claims they made that haven't been scientific, what's been supported, what's not been supported, where the things can we improve on. But certainly um, the over the overall um, element and the mass of this information has been gone around for many, many years. Let me ask you about the hygiene movement. So you were into Water fasting? Were you, were you not? Is that part of the hygiene movement? Is that yes? I I think natural hygiene um, when the natural hygiene society transformed their name to the National Health Association years ago, and the, most of the um, professionals that were involved in that society did utilize fasting, water fasting, as an adjunctive 
therapeutic modality, and I did use, utilize water fasting on patients for a lot of conditions throughout my career, especially when you have a case of like autoimmune conditions or asthma or lupus or that, that's not getting well with diet alone, I, I, or even ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. I've episodically had people go on fasts to help facilitate their resolution of their condition. So, you know, I don't recommend fasting with people eating a standard American diet um, because obviously they go back to eating unhealthfully. It's not really. But as an adjunctive therapeutic modality for people who've gotten themselves sick and aren't quite getting all the benefits they, can, they need to get well, especially the bowel rest from in colitis and Crohn's is helpful. And I have a lot of colitis patients that are, have, like, fasted, you know, four days a month for, you know, for to maintain their remission for a long period of time and then eventually, you know, so it's something that takes years to get them totally well and that, and I think that fasting can be used therapeutically and is being used therapeutically um, effectively in certain conditions. You know, it's, I'm interested you brought that up because my first practice I ever worked in, in a, as a PA, there was this kind of, it was in Los Angeles and the doc came in and he took over this kind of natural medicine doctor's practice and everybody went on a vegetable puree and that was the first place I saw how powerful getting off offending foods was because all kinds of things improved just by being on this kind of vegetable puree so water fasting is one one step past that but right right okay so let's um, get into why do you think I mean you kind of already answered it but why why do you think the U.S. has so much heart disease and worldwide you know heart disease is the number one killer well, you know, I, I guess the preface to that question is that, you know, I do think that heart disease is unnatural. It's not something that humans need to die of if we eat a diet that's well-designed biologically for our species. And, you know, I, I simplified dietary, you know, the diet by saying, by dividing food into three categories, uh, produce, uh, processed and refined foods, and animal products. And Americans eat 55% of calories of processed foods and about 30% of calories from animal products and we only eat about 5 to 10% from animal from from produce and i say 5 to 10% because if you because the 5 to 10% if we extract white potato and ketchup and mostly you know like french fries and and mashed potato and and, and um you know then then we're down to 5%. Yeah. Um so Americans are eating a very low amount of produce and to overly simplify things you could say as produce goes up to higher percent in the diet from Americans of 5% to 20%, 30%, 50%, 80%, 90%, then you would see heart disease go down in a population in direct correlation with that increased consumption of produce and, the sub, and, the, um, and of course, the lowering of the combination of, of processed food and animal products. If you lower animal products and put in more produce, you're going to get lower heart attacks. And if you lower processed foods and put in more produce, you're going to get less heart attacks, even if you kept animal products stationary. So it... It largely has to do with the percent of calories from produce in the diet compared to other foods that do not contain phytochemicals, antioxidants, and fiber. So I, I say like that a piece of chicken is like a piece of bread or a bagel. They're similar. Why is, it, why is a piece of chicken like a bagel? Well, first of all, neither the chicken nor the bagel has any significant source of fiber. It doesn't have any significant micronutrient load. It's, it's not rich in vitamins and minerals, and it's, there's no phytochemicals and antioxidants there. It's, they're mostly um, calorically dense. Then in the case of chicken, it's protein-rich. In the case of the bagel, it's carbohydrate-rich, but there's not those beneficial nutrients that have come along for the ride when you eat produce. It's not, not, the, it's not the macronutrient that's so, that so bad. It's the fact that it's lacking all the micronutrients and antioxidants that natural produce has when you consume calories, it's associated with all these protective nutrients. And without those protective nutrients, 
we develop what's called oxidative stress, a buildup of toxins in the body, mostly free radicals and advanced glycation end products, and our tissues age faster. They become more stiff, they degenerate, they, they, they become more aged and, and our blood vessels become more stiff and we our body deteriorates at a more rapid rate because we're lacking these beneficial nutrients. And it's, of course there's lots of other reasons why. And the other reason a piece of chicken is like a bagel is that a bagel hormonally has a high glycemic fluid so it will raise insulin. And a high levels of circulating insulin, you know, a high glycemic load means that it produces a large insulin response in the first hour after the food is eaten. But that large insulin spike stays in the bloodstream for hours and, and actually promotes atherosclerosis, promotes a fat deposition and, 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 um, and even promotes cell replication and cell growth and cancer. And likewise with a piece of chicken, because Americans eat so much animal products, their level of animal protein and high biological protein is so high that it's accelerating IGF-1 to excessively high levels that is also growth promoting and promotes cellular replication and, and actually could accelerate um, the common causes of death. So it's helpful to reduce processed foods and animal products and in its place substitute uh, much more produce is the whole basic oversimplification, but that's the basic key here. So a lot of talk has been uh, um, about the inner lining of the artery, endothelial function. Um, and if that is kept pristine, that single layer, then we don't get bad disease, heart disease. Now, how does your dietary approach help prevent that? Or do you believe endothelial function is important? Well, you know, I believe all these, um, what should we say at their um, intermediate endpoints are important, whether it's oxidized LDL, endothelial function, they're all important, but no one measurement explains everything because the most important endpoint is the, are the harder outcome endpoints like death and MI. You know what I mean? If we want to look at a study, we, we don't, you know, it's hard to study people and see what, they're what they die from because you've got to do a study for many, many, many years, like 10 or 20 years to get the people to actually die or live longer. You know what I mean? Or, so, but, but it's easier to study the intermediate endpoints like blood pressure, pulse pressure, you know, body fat, endothelial function, oxidized LDL. But I, I, I'll answer your question in a second, but I just want to simplify it for a second and say that, you know, if you have a normal blood pressure without the use of medication into your 60s and 70s, you most likely have good elasticity endothelial function. If you're requiring medication to lower your blood pressure, then you likely have poor endothelial function, stiffened blood vessels. The point, the, the measurement one of the simple, most simple measurements to determine that you're in optimal health is having normal blood pressure without the need for medication to lower it. Having a normal body weight, having a normal exercise tolerance, having a normal cholesterol without the need for cholesterol medications to lower it. Having a normal glucose circulating, you know, normal, not, be, not being diabetic, having a normal glucose and hemoglobin A1C without needing medications to lower it. In other words, um, once you're on multiple drugs to try to push the numbers in a better place, then you're just camouflaging the, the damage. And, the, and your death rate or your ultimate endpoint is your heart attack or death rate is going to be high factors involved. You, you mentioned normal blood pressure, cholesterol, and glucose. And if, if, let's say, your blood pressure was normal without medicine, then that's a good state of health and, and an indirect measurement of kind of how your vascular system is doing. What to you is a normal blood pressure, a normal glucose, fasting glucose, and a normal cholesterol? Well... You know, that's the other thing is that people think it's normal for the blood pressure to, to go higher with aging. And, and we look at prim people on, in more primitive cultures who eat more natural foods. We don't see blood pressure rising in the elderly. And over my, you know, my 10, 25 years of practicing as a family doctor, 
watching people adopt my nutritarian approach and their blood pressures come back to normal and we take them off medications and as they age and go into their 80s and 90s the blood pressure doesn't rise it's the same it's, it's low now even and actually it's, it's actually improved as they got older because it's longer time they're following the diet so to answer your question I would say a blood pressure below 120 over 75 it would be considered normal and what would be too low but what would be too low people say you go you know you get adrenally weak or whatever what would you consider too low I don't necessarily think that question is um, is correct. Let me let me explain what I'm saying. That certainly it's dangerous to have a blood pressure that's too low if you're using medication, because a medicated blood pressure that's too low prevents refilling of the coronary arteries during diastole and can lead to irregular heartbeat, and sudden cardiac death, and heart attack. So the overuse of medication, especially pushing diastolic too low, is dangerous. A blood pressure below 70 can double the risk of um, cardiac death and below 60 that's medicated down can triple the risk of cardiac death. But when we're talking about a person who's eating healthy, with who's exercised their whole life, who's never been, who's always been on a healthy diet, they can have a blood pressure, you know, of 100 over 60, and it and it's not too low. That 60 might be dangerous. It was medicated down there, but their blood pressure is low because their heart is so. If they have an athletic heart, they have youthful and elastic tissues. They don't need a lot of. Um, they, because of the elasticity, they don't need a higher dollar stock to return to refill coronary vessels during diastole. So what I'm saying to you that if a person's blood pressure is, if they're healthy and they're not having any symptoms and they're physically fit, it's not too low if they're not having, but if a person is, um, as their blood vessels become more aged and stiff and their blood pressure is medicated low, then it can be too low. Unless they have some disease like the, you know, you know some kind of, um, adrenal insufficiency or some kind of um, wasting disease or some problem pushing blood pressure too low due to a medical issue, I don't think that low blood pressure without symptoms is a sign of ill health. It's actually a sign of excellent health. How about cholesterol? The much talked about what, cholesterol. What, what, what is a range? Well, you know, normally a, a, an LDL below 100 is favorable. But that doesn't mean that a person who has an LDL you know, genetically they're running 120, let's say, and they're eating a super healthy diet, may, that may be very good for them. They don't have to be worried about that and try to push it lower because your heart attack risk is not just related to this one endpoint. And maybe with their 120 LDL, it's their, their oxidized LDL um, is very, very low. You know, so it's the oxidized LDL that puts them at risk. And the, just an LDL reading is not that sensitive or specific a test to really determine risk. So even though, generally speaking, when we see a person following a very healthy diet, their total LDLs drop below 100, and their total cholesterol usually drops below 150, but I wouldn't want to say that um, there aren't exceptions, and I don't want to make people nervous if they are either already doing perfectly, their body weight's low, their body fat's, you know, excellent, they have good exercise tolerance, eat a perfectly healthy diet, and their cholesterol's little running a little high, and that's, I don't think it's a, a, a major concern. Their blood pressure's good. I wouldn't think it's a concern, and they shouldn't be, be focused on that one issue, like cholesterol is everything here, you know? Do you, um, do you measure inflammatory markers such as the plaque test or myeloperoxidase or oxidized LDL to, as an adjunctive assessment? for your patients or do you not it, it varies because you know in most of the, in most cases the people are doing so well that the cheaper tests are adequate enough for me right. the only you know the only time you would need to do that is to um 
reassure a patient who has a higher LDL who's thinking of taking a statin, considering taking something like a statin drug, and there are other doctors that are like disagreeing and thinking that I should, I'm saying don't take anything, just stay with the diet, you're doing fine, and I can say, well, okay, let's do some other markers, let's do some oxidized LDL, spend the extra money, and I'll show you your level's going to be okay, because you're eating, because you've been on this diet for three years already, and you, you know, don't worry about the, you know, the, the cholesterol of the 200 and the LDL of 130, and then those tests might be indicated to a more expensive test, but, so I've, it's rare that I have to do those tests. You know what I mean? And because mm-hmm. um, they're, they're not that inexpensive and they're not that easy, um, readily available, the more, the more modern tests that are a little more accurate. You follow me? Do you even do a CRP with your cholesterol or no? No, I don't bother with the CRP because all my people, all of my patients that are following my diet, their CRP has disappeared. It's so low. It's almost in, it's, there's no, it's never high. I've never seen one that's elevated. You know what I mean? What are we wasting the money on a CRP for if we're eating a diet? Some of these things can be useful to convince a person who's not following the program to go say, well, look, you're doing bad. You could, you know, it's always helpful to measure people, show them what, how bad they are to motivate them to do better. But once they're doing well, I don't see the purpose of spending the money on measuring all these things. Okay. How about fasting glucose? What do, you, do, you, do you care about that at all or A1C? Well, yeah, I care about it. But the, but the same thing regarding the um, what we said already is that, you know, if you're diabetic and you're overweight and eating poorly and you're looking at these numbers, you've, they're focused on the number and they're thinking they can medicate these numbers down. And my point is is that um, in most cases that could make things worse. So don't just look at the number. Let's look at what the cause of it being high and look at and deal with it. You know, let's get your body fat lower now. Let's increase the exercise. Let's look at your diet and see if we can make it stricter. Let's see, you know, so as long as we can, we can look at these things to motivate people to make more aggressive changes in their lifestyle, sure, they're good to measure. But I'm not going to just measure them. So, yeah, we'd want a hemoglobin A1C, you know, below 5.5. Sure, we want, you know, diabetes is, you know, we, you know pre-diabetes is diabetes. The higher it goes, the more risk you have. However, just pushing it down with the medication isn't going to take away your risk. You have to do the same thing as present here. You want to have it run lower because it's representative of how healthy you're living. How about, uh, so let's talk about what the, a nutrient-dense, plant-rich diet style is. Can you go through that for me? Sure. You know, because you're reading this article, and this article that I think I sent you um, that was published in the recent journal, was this, you know, was, we showed that, um, that people dropped their blood pressure on the average 26 millimeters mercury, which, was, which is much stronger than drugs can do. But when you drop it with, with, um, with a healthy diet instead of drugs, it represents you know, a total healing of the body. It's not just covering it up. You, know, you can't compare the two. But so let me answer that question. Is the, the, I call it a nutrient-rich, I mean a nutrient-dense plant-rich diet because it's nutrient-dense because we're picking out foods that are naturally high in nutrients. The diet is, has, I always give this formula, H equals N divided by C, which means your healthy life expectancy is proportional to the nutrient density, the nutrient per calorie density of your diet. That means the more nu- high nutrient foods you eat and the more you eat foods that have a high nutrient per calorie density, the longer you live. That means you don't want to take a lot of empty calories that don't have nutrients in them, which means things like you know, sugar, bread, pasta, white rice, things like, you know, we don't want to eat you know, white bread and things that are low in nutrients. We want things that are colorful, that contain those phytochemicals and antioxidants. So it's designed around green vegetables, colorful vegetables, orange and red foods, beans, nuts and seeds, berries, you know, all kinds of mushrooms, onions, you know, all the foods that we want to get the full cornucopia of natural phytochemicals nature's design that can help human immune system function better. And we do that. It doesn't just increase our risk of cancer by increasing immune function, but it has the effect to be by reducing oxidative stress, extend longevity, and enhance our protection against heart disease. So I say nutrient-dense is because we're picking out foods that are nutrient-rich, 
mostly natural foods that nature designed that grow, you know, that, and then we use, and I use the word plant rich because instead of plant based, because based means 50% or more of calories. And that's not enough plant foods because the American diet is already plant based because the American diet is 55% of calories from, from processed plants. So it's already plant based. Um, and it doesn't determine the quality of those calories. You know, in other words, saying a plant-based diet, even whole foods plant-based, doesn't determine the, the quality of those foods you're choosing to eat. Or, or that it's, so I say plant-rich, because rich means 80% or more, not 50% or more. So, if you, so I'm just trying to be more, um, use, um, use words more carefully in their definition so that people understand exactly what I'm saying. High nutrients, natural foods, reducing animal products to a small percent of calories if you're still consuming them. Because since the American diet is 30% of calories, I want people to not consume more than 10%. And if you have heart disease or a serious condition, I would like your animal products to be in the zero to five percent range. Not even on, you know. So as a, as a societal um, recommendation, I think that I'm pretty um, conservative here in saying that I think that the majority of nutritional researchers the world over would agree that. Americans that we should reduce processed foods and high glycemic carbohydrates and we have to eat less animal products and to eat less that most of the studies show we have to cut down by at least at least to removing two-thirds of what Americans eating and that's 30 percent to 10 percent or below and so I don't think these statements are should be looked at as controversial just because the American populace is so far away from it I don't think that it should seem be this should be seen radical it, by this is just the preponderance of where the evidence points, and then we can argue the small nuances, whether 0 to 5% is better than 8%, but I think that, generally speaking, we have to at least agree with the overall picture that it, it's not controversial to say that people have to dramatically reduce their animal product consumption and the consumption of processed foods. How about, um, let's talk about fats in the diet, nuts and seed versus free oils. What do you allow in your diet? Well, don't forget, I'm not against fats in the diet. I think nuts and seeds are an excellent food. So, but the American population is eating too many calories. They're eating much too much oil. They're, they're eating about, on the average, 400 calories of oil a day. And they're consuming more calories because they're, they're, all, they're all overweight. It's very rare that you see a person of normal weight. In other words, you know how conventional, society, um, conventional authorities say that 66% of the population is overweight or, or obese? and about a third is of normal weight, but that's based on a, using a BMI of 25 as being the demarcation point of being abnormal. And if you use the you know, 23, then you have over 80% of the population is overweight. What I'm, and then, it, then if you look at the people that are cons they're considering a normal weight, most of those people that are considering a normal weight are people whose weight is decreased because they smoke cigarettes, they're alcoholics, they have autoimmune conditions, they have occult cancers, they have digestive disorders, they're depressed, they're, they're, you know, they're, in other words, most of those people in the normal weight categories are sickly is why they're normal weight. The, but the point I'm making is that most Americans who are healthy eating the American diet are going to become overweight. And one of the reasons they're overweight is the excessive use of free oil because the body can absorb it so rapidly that it has to put it away into fat stores as opposed to burning it for energy. When you eat your, if you took those calories and ate nuts and seeds in place of oils, even if you didn't even change the fat content of your diet, even if you took, even if you ate 400 calories from nuts and seeds, those 400 calories would be absorbed over hours, not over minutes, and your body would burn them for energy. And because they're associated with a lot of fiber, like sterols and stanols that bind fat, a lot of those fat calories would pass through into, your, into the toilet bowl, increasing stool fat, so all those calories are not biologically available. What I'm saying here 
is that if people would take their, you know, I encourage people to make salad dressings and sauces and dips from using sesame seeds and walnuts and sunflower seeds and hemp seeds and pistachio nuts and to actually flavor food and make tasty, delicious recipes using nuts and seeds in place of where they would use oil. So I might make a salad dressing out of like, a, you know, tomato, like a low-fat tomato sauce with um, almonds and sunflower seeds and some fig vinegar and a fig. Or I might make a dressing from an orange and blood orange vinegar and some cashews and sesame seeds and, an, you know, and, um, and some lemon. Or I make a, you know, so I'm, I'm suggesting that, yes, saturated fats, most from animal products, have a negative effect on endothelial function. Oils are not as bad, but they still, but the excessive use of oil, because they flood the bloodstream so rapidly in such a concentrated fashion after they're eaten, also can have mildly negative effects on endothelial function, and they have very, and they have negative effects on body weight, on, on fat deposition on the body. Nuts and seeds, on the other hand, even though they're high in fat, have um, opposite effects. They promote, they lower the glycemic effect of your diet. They increase the absorption of phytochemicals from the vegetables you're eating, and they increase the anti-inflammatory effects, and they don't, and they have helpful effects on endothelial function. And so there's a, they're, they're a horse of a different color, and I've shown over my 25 years of taking care of people with the most advanced stages of heart disease, people who have, you know, you know, completely occluded major vessels, on, on, you know, or, or people who are, you know, undergoing unstable angina or, 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 can't, or too sick for surgeries. And, you know, I've seen these people reverse their conditions consistently over the years. I've probably seen, you know, with my 23 years of practice, probably seen more very, very advanced people with advanced conditions, treating them probably than, you know, I can't imagine a much doctor having more experience with watching these people reverse because I've been out there in the, in the field, you know, seeing people every day in my life for all these years. But in any case, this program effectively reverses people's condition, and it's not necessary to cut the, all the fat calories out of their diet, though I do recommend they not consume oil and they use nuts and seeds as their source of fat in place of the oils they were consuming before. Let me ask you then, so nuts and seeds, I get it, but they're very easy to, I always give this analogy when I'm seeing a patient. When I was young, nuts and seeds, nuts were in a bowl, and they had a shell on them. And if I sat down and cracked a palmful, it would take me a half hour. Now you can go to any supermarket. My grandchildren will never see nuts in a bowl with a shell on them. They just go buy a big bag for 5 to $10, and they can sit there and pound so do you have a volume? Can you give a pot, like, is it a palm full of nuts or seeds a day that you'd recommend? Because it's too easy to eat a lot. Well, number one, don't forget, I'm never recommending people snack, or especially not snack on nuts and seeds. They're only to be used as part of a meal, and they're actually increasing the absorption of phytochemicals from the food you're eating, so you should eat them with the meal that contains the most vegetables, the highest phytochemical consumption. So we're mostly using them as dressings, you know, not as a snack and not to be eating by the handful at all, but just to put them in the dressing or to put them in part of the dish so that you are utilizing or, or sprinkle it, you know, lightly toasted sesame seeds on your salad. So, so yes, we're not going to over, – over-consuming calories is not something that we want people to do. And you could – so a person who has a dysfunctional relationship with food could utilize dried fruit and nuts and seeds – in an unsavory way to promote to maintain their obesity or their overweight condition. That's certainly not what we're recommending using food that using food that way. But, but so I think it's. But you know, people who are normally emotionally healthy and educated usually recognize that you have to have balance in your diet. And since I'm wanting them to eat, you know, a pound of vegetables and a cup of beans and and you know, three fresh fruits and mushrooms and onions and all these healthy foods in your diet, you don't have room. You know, you 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 know. So you we're talking generally about 
one to three ounces of nuts and seeds for most people here. You know, that means we're talking about somewhere between 200 and 400 calories of nuts and seeds a day. We're not talking about eating a diet of predominantly nuts and seeds, you know what I mean? And we're not talking about snacking on them either. We're talking about certainly using food reasonably and, and, um, and with this whole element of what is a nutritarian diet, what is a high-nutrient diet. And that means consuming enough healthy foods each day in the right kind of balance. Why do you, um, uh, are you, you love, I know beans are a big part of your diet regimen and greens. Can you just take those two foods and explain the, the benefits that you see? Sure. Well, first of all, if we look at, you know, we, we need carbo- a lot of carbohydrate in our diet. Um, you know, we have to, you know, or we want to consume sufficient calories to maintain our energy, and we can't just, you know, some green vegetables are, are superfoods that fight cancer and heart disease, but they're not, they don't have enough calories in them to sustain us for our excess, you know, they're so low in calories, we need to eat some carbohydrates. So, so beans, so we can rank carbohydrates on a hierarchical scale to say, well, which ones are more nutrient-rich? Which ones have been shown in studies to promote longevity? Which ones, you know, are linked to, you know, enhanced least lifespan? Which ones are higher in fiber? Which ones have more anti-cancer effects? Which ones have lower glycemic effects? You know, have more resistant starch and slowly digestible starches? Which, which ones contain, um, you know, are more promote the bacteria, the, pro, the, the bacteria in the gut that make for lower glycemic effects of other foods? So the point is I'm making is that beans have the most resistant starch of any carbohydrate source. And a lot of carbohydrates have some resistant starch, but if we, as we go up the hierarchical scale, beans are higher in fiber and higher in resistant starch, and the majority of their starch they contain is what's called slowly digestible starches, which are, are absorbed into the bloodstream over two to four hours as opposed to over you know, 30 to 60 minutes. And we're talking here about their, they, they maintain our, they make it so we're not hungry, they keep us flowing the, the um, carbohydrates fed into the bloodstream over many hours. They keep our, our insulin response low, and they're nutrient-rich, have anti-cancer effects. And as a carbohydrate, they're also rich in protein, which helps us especially maintain muscle mass as we age in our, our athletic activity. And we, you may be aware that you know, uh, if we eat animal protein, it pushes up, can push up IGF-1 too high to accelerate aging. But as protein assimilation goes down with aging, over the, especially over the age of 80, you know, putting more beans in our diet keeps our IGF-1 from dropping too low as protein emissation goes down. Even though too high an IGF-1 is not good, too low an IGF-1 after the age of 75 is also could be negative to your promoting longevity. So beans have all these features that make them so favorable, um, anti-cancer effects, anti-glycemic effects, and they lower cholesterol, and they have high, and they're high in fiber, and they're filling, and they're delicious. So yes, yeah, so, so beans, so I'm not, um, so I want people to use, you know, peas and you know, whole grains and, and squashes and hard squashes, and I want people to eat an assortment of, of various carbohydrates, but certainly I want them to keep these, the G-bombs in mind, and I use that acronym G-bombs, so they recognize that I want them to emphasize these foods that have these um, salient features that make them so beneficial to promote their longevity, and the G-bomb stands for greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, and so it's not just nutrient density. You don't want to just live on broccoli and kale. Other foods that are not as nutrient dense have some salient features that give them powerful anti-cancer effects, like mushrooms and onions, like beans, like flax seeds and sesame seeds and chia seeds. And of course, you mentioned green vegetables, especially the cruciferous greens like the, you know, the broccoli rub and the kale and the collards and the bok choy and the cabbage and the arugula and the watercress are rich in those ITCs, those isothiocyanites that fuel the 
body's you know cellular repair mechanisms. I know I don't want to get too technical here and talk about the machinery they fuel, but they're the power. You know, you know, they're the they're the powerful fuel for the ARE, the antioxidant response element in the cell that's largely responsible for keeping the cell clean and preventing epigenetic changes and you know deposition of of um, of anti of um, AREs or um, I'm sorry of the um, of the AGEs of the um, the a, um, advanced glycation end products. So we're saying there's a an anti-aging effects of consuming raw green vegetables regularly in your diet. So like I'll tell people, you know, put some red cabbage on your salad. Shred, so put a little watercress arugula there. Put a, cut up a little kale. Put some kale into your, you know, in other words, we'll try to add some of those raw greens to your diet specifically each day to try to get them into your um, daily intake because they have such these um, incredible beneficial effects to be to include them on a regular basis in your to promote longevity. Do you supplement with any fish oil or or, or your uh, vegetarian DHA EPA or how do you decide when and how to do that if you ever do? Um, that's a great question, and I and I'm and it brings up another study that was recently published where 166 vegans were who were not supplementing with EPA and DHA oils. And they were studied, and they found that their average omega-3 index was 3.7, and most people consider 5 or 6 to be normal. But certainly below 3, we, start, we have studies that show that you see shrinkage of the brain occur with aging us over the age of 80 with people who run DHAs through life below 3. And even though um, we can make some EPA and DHA from consuming flax seeds and chia seeds and greens and walnuts, the conversion is so variable from person to person. So that um, this study indicated that the those that had a very low index, three or below, the 27% that were severely deficient and even the 2.5% that were dangerously, you know, almost had almost no EPA and DHA in their tissues, um, didn't were not those that did weren't consuming walnuts and flax seeds. In other words, it demonstrated that the people with the lowest levels were more, were more genetically determined by genetic differences in the conversion enzymes as opposed to what they were consuming in their diet. So there's a wide genetic variability for the individual to manufacture EPA and DHA from the ALA precursor. And I'm wanting to be conservative and make sure that nobody is, um, is left in a you know, left hurt or damaged in any way by just assuming that everybody's okay. So I do recommend people supplement with a low dose of EPA or DHA, preferably, you know, algae-derived, um, or take a blood test to confirm adequacy. Um, you know, there's too much cavalier attitude in people who are philosophical vegans who want to believe that, you know, everybody's fine eating a vegan diet, and obviously my a lot of people weren't fine eating a vegan diet, and a lot of people aren't fine eating it, and they do need to watch for what they need to supplement with uh, in a conservative and uh, um, in a careful fashion. And, and as you mentioned, my new book that's coming out in a few months, you know, I went through hundreds of studies on this issue showing that, you know, deficiency of, of EPA or DHA could lead to increased cardiac arrhythmia like atrial fibrillation. But, you know, taking too much can also cause cardiac arrhythmia and be harmful. And too little can be, cause, cause issues, but taking too much can cause issues. And you have people, you know, popping fish oil pills, three, you know, two, three, four grams a day, and that could also have negative effects. And those people who are against using supplements or against using any EPA or DHA supplementation can utilize that research to show that excessive supplementation could be harmful as an argument why nobody should supplement. 
And it's really, there's, there's so much, you know, predetermined biases here. And I'm trying to look at this in, most, in a way that's just um, conservative and careful and saying, you know, it's not good to be extremely deficient in anything. But you don't want to use supplements in a way to think because a little is good that a lot is, the, is to take more and more because too much could be harmful too. So I think that um, conservatively we have to, that, um, that people should be, you know, should take a low dose. Because, you know, in the same study I'm referencing, that with 166 vegans, the ones that were deficient were given a, given a low dose, 200 milligrams of EPA plus DHA a day, and almost every one of those people normalized their, EP, their omega-3 index with such a low-dose supplementation. So I'm a little bit more cautious in saying don't take huge amounts of this stuff just because you needed to take some. Well, it's a it's a controversial issue because I struggle with it because I do fatty acid profiles on a lot of people. And um, there's a wide range, but there's also a wide range between if you do different companies and fatty acids and what you get. But it's it's an area that I, w- I would love to see take the Okinawan centenarians and do fatty acid profiles and see what they are because I think our norms are all messed up. I mean, it's like a cholesterol. If you have a... Uh, an average for the the United States population is going to be high, you know, the bell-shaped curve. Yeah, true, true. but we, we have to look at all the information we have available and come to the best conclusions we can. And that's where, like, if we look at the, the studies on the Adventist Health Study, for example, on the Adventist, they've got a lot of good, you know, the best data, we've we got to go with what we got. And they show that, for example, the low-fat vegans, the ones not eating nuts and seeds, don't live as long as the vegans eating nuts and seeds, that the higher intake of nut and seed fat has a major impact on adding years to their life. Likewise, they even showed that the vegans with a little bit of fish in their diet lived longer than those vegans who just ate, who were the low-fat vegans. Now, so the, um, the point is we can't just um, make assumptions. We have to look at all the evidence we have. And some, you know, so I think that you're right, and I'm agreeing with you, that we have to just um, be careful and not take risks with people and show, share the data with them and be conservative. And if we're going to use supplementations, do so in a conservative manner. Can you uh, just, uh, before we close off, can you just summarize, you know, you, your, about how many people were in your survey of your patient population and kind of the highlights of the results from that? Yes, I, th- I think the, the highlights were that we had a large number of responders and that, for example, I think in the high blood pressure group, I think there were, let me check, I think there were 445 people in that group where the average blood pressure was lowered um, 26 millimeters millimercury. And the, and the point is, is that that number of 26 points decreased were people who were following the diet 80% adherence or better, which means that they weren't people following the program 100%. That's just even 80% and better will follow, got a 26-degree lowering, the pr- lowering, which is the most, I, I don't think any studies, like the DASH diet lowers blood pressure, which is heralded by all the doctors to use the DASH diet for lower blood pressure, only lowers blood pressure, even in the strictest one with the low, very low sodium intake, only seven to, about 10 millimeters mercury. So clearly, and, and of course, the average, per, there were 75 people in the blood, in the obese, obese patient arm that had, um, that on the average lowered their weight, about 55 pounds, I think within year one. And then they, and, and they showed that they maintained the weight loss through year two and year three, which is also unheard of. People almost always gain the weight back in other studies. And the same thing with the LDL cholesterol drop. And then the, even people you know, were on medication who stopped their medication, their blood pressure came down. And I gave, um, of course, I think eight cases of people with very advanced disease who were, who were on medication, still having high blood pressure, on medication, still with high cholesterol, who now off the, on the program with no medication for blood pressure, no medication for cholesterol, whose blood pressure is normalized, whose cholesterol is normalized, and whose cardiovascular illnesses melted away. If they don't have symptoms, they don't have chest pain, they have full activity, and most of these people lost lots of weight in the process. So, um, so I'm showing both the, 
um, application, how it's effectively changed people's, you know, have people recover their health, and of course, aggregately with the number of participants, a tremendous power to have an effect on society if people would adopt more aggressive nutritional interventions. When uh, does your book come out, and what will be the title of the book, and can it be pre-ordered? Oh, I don't know if it can be pre-ordered yet. I think it's it'll be pre-ordered probably shortly because the book's not coming out till March, April, two thousand sixteen. So probably in a month, I would expect it could be two month or two it could be pre-ordered. Um, it's the end of heart disease. I already have a book called The End of Diabetes and The End of Dieting, and now I'm continuing that series, The End of Heart Disease. And I'm very excited about this book. It's my largest book. It's more information than any book I've ever written because it doesn't just go through what to do. It goes through, you know. What's wrong with taking drugs to lower your blood pressure? Do you know that you know all about the side effects of all the, inter the conventional interventions, angioplasties and bypass surgery? You know the fact that there's a you know increasing your risk of breast cancer from calcium channel blockers and the negative effect of pushing your diastolics too low. And 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 I, and I evaluate you know I t touch the issue of you know saturated fat and salt and I go through all the controversies and and. and that people have and try to present the research in a balanced fashion so this book can be used to give people in total informed consent about what their doctor is going to, before the doctor gives them medication or cholesterol lowering. And, and of course, I evaluate the, the most popular and effective diets for reversing heart disease, DASH diet, Mediterranean diet, um, Esselstyn, Ornish, you know, um, Prezikin, all these, and I go through what's good, what's bad, and, and, and how it differs, and where my recommendations might differ slightly, but obviously I'm trying to show the, his the history, the historical data that shows that we don't have to have heart disease. And, and in a comprehensive fashion, a person really reading this information, I feel, is going to be highly motivated to change the way they eat and take better care of their health. The whole thing is about giving people the information they need to not just so we can motivate them to really make the change. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You got me excited. I, I, I love the historical part about going through all the different diets. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly read it when I get a copy. Um, now, how do people get a hold of you or your, your website or and, and your products? Right. Um, DrFerman.com is my website and, you know, obviously D-R-F-U-H-R-M-A-N.com and obviously and I you know, I have um, books and I have information on the website, and I even have a member center where people join for a fee, where they can have the get more recipes and more help and guidance and ha actually ask me questions about their conditions. Because I want to make this information, you know, because a lot of people are suffering with unusual conditions and getting advice from their physicians, and I can help maybe guide them a little bit and even give them some advice to their doctors sometimes, in some cases. And it's educational. People will read that and to read the information about a particular case. Maybe you have rheumatoid arthritis and you're reading what I'm telling another person with rheumatoid arthritis or colitis to do or psoriasis and you get that motivation if you have, like other people you've seen who got well from their psoriasis and this is what they're doing and I can maybe it'll help me too. So, I, so I'm trying to make, um, you know, so I get a lot of uh, um, satisfaction answering people's questions and working with people from around the world who, who, want, who want my help there. there. Well, that's great. Well, Dr. Furman, thanks for spending the time. We could go on. It's always in a, it's not a, it's an information, information dense as well as nutrient dense uh, uh, conversation whenever we get together. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. It's a lot of fun. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of uh, Stay, the Staying Healthy Today show. Remember, you can go to my website, stayinghealthytoday.com, or you can listen to this in iTunes or listen to it there. You can sign up for my health letter and podcasts. So until next time, stay and be well. Thank you.